You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in the house for a new week. On Monday morning, January 22nd, 2018. And what a beautiful day. It's probably going to be in the 60s here today, uh, you know, after weeks of gosh, you know, sub-freezing weather, and it was insane. And, you know, what what a nice day for a shutdown. (laughs) What a nice day to celebrate constitutional governance. You know, I must say, I must say here, from the onset, you know, we always talk about how illegal immigrants bring nothing but pain and misery to this country, destroy our language, our culture, put a strain on our budget, our 844 percent more likely to become criminals, particularly the young illegal immigrant dreamers. Lots of security issues from them. But there is one job they've accomplished. Credit where it's due. At least illegals have done one job Americans won't do. And that is they have helped shut down the non-essential functions of the federal government. And that is a job that Americans, including conservatives, have been unsuccessful in doing. Now, sadly, this is going to be very temporary. But at least we must give them some sort of credit. They have done one job Americans won't do. You know, it's funny. This is the time, I would say time of year, we don't have a shutdown every year, but this is the time where you could actually see or actualize Madison's dream in Federalist 49 of what, was intended with the construction of the federal government, that it should have dominion over all external affairs, national security, things that are federal in scope, imminent emergencies. All issues of internal order would be left to the states, localities, and the people, and whatever private associations or businesses you create to handle those functions. So all non-essential government shuts down. Well, shouldn't it shut down all the time? But there's something else significant about today, January 22nd. Not only is it this first work week, work day of the so-called government shutdown, it's also the one-year anniversary of President Trump's inauguration, and it's also the 45th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, where the Supreme Court declared the judiciary the sole and final arbiter of every political and social question that's not legal in nature, certainly not addressed by the Constitution, and that they have the power to define or redefine life. And from there it flowed that they have the sole and final power to redefine or define gender, marriage, citizenship, you name it. Hopefully, by the end of this show, you're going to understand why all three of those tie in. So I first want to start off just talking about the nature of a government shutdown, then move on to immigration, the impetus behind this, and then explain how that ties into Roe v. Wade a little bit, 
the March for Life, which took place on Friday, the 45th anniversary of the court decision. And through it all, to me, this is one of the shows that I hope will be very foundational, very teachable, because this is a teachable moment. This is one of those times where if you only follow politics very casually and you're not a you know daily consumer of news, knowing what happens this week will give you all of the tools to understand the asymmetrical warfare in politics, the inherent asymmetry between the two political parties, where one party is willing to fight for illegal aliens more than the other party is willing to fight for Americans. And therein lies all the problems with our political system. But let's let's unpack this. Let's start off with the so-called government shutdown. So as you know, Friday night, At midnight, there was a lapse in funding. That's when we had the expiration of the last continuing budget resolution. And supposedly, we have a government shutdown. Now, every weekend, the government shuts down. So nothing even happened until Monday. Um, Just to unpack what happens, what doesn't happen constitutionally. So obviously, constitutionally, we understand that you need Congress to appropriate funding. You can't have a rogue executive branch just doing things without Congress. Congress has the power of the purse. If they don't appropriate funding, then um, government cannot expend uh, funds. Government cannot draw from the Treasury without an appropriation. That's straight up Article I powers, and nobody disputes that. Now, theoretically... Just because government can't spend money doesn't mean they can't operate. They could incur debts. They could, you know, not pay their workers or their programs or their functions, but still kind of operate them in the status quo constitutionally. But that's governed by statute. There is um, an act Congress passed a couple decades ago, the Anti-Deficiency Act, which basically prohibits government from even operating under an authorization without an appropriation of government. So, you know, whereas let's say you have, I don't know, your paper pushers at Department of Education, Department of Commerce, hey, they could show up to work, continue, you know, doing their whatever they do on a regular day, which, you know, I don't understand some of these departments. It's just that you cannot incur more liability and actually, well, you could incur more liability. You just can't spend more money. You can't draw more funds from the Treasury. But this Anti-Deficiency Act ensures that government basically cannot even operate. You cannot function. And that's where the so-called shutdown comes from. Not from the Constitution. It comes from statute. Now, obviously, even in statute, it makes four very big exceptions. The four big E's. Those parts of government agencies, departments that are accepted, that are exempt, that are emergency, or that are essential. Now, here's the thing. Over the past couple decades, the executive branch has interpreted this very liberally. So, pretty much three-quarters to four-fifths of government is deemed as one of those categories – you know, certainly, obviously, military and border and anything dealing with security 
um, loss of life, you know, danger to life, danger to property, all functions, but even things you would never imagine. Uh, you know, it was interesting. The Smithsonian announced over the weekend that they were open. You know, the zoo was open, the museums were opened. So <laughs> I don't know what what is. I don't know what isn't essential. I mean, there's very few things. I have a friend who works for the VA, but he's not, I mean, he's a psychologist and he always jokes around. He's like, I, I don't know why I need to work any day, um, what I do there. But he said he's considered essential. So, so he, he shows up as well. The only people I know, so I live here, you know, here in central Maryland, it's right near the massive headquarters of the Social Security Administration, which is in Woodlawn, Maryland, right on the west side of Baltimore. And just on my block, I know four people who work for them. So they're they're home today, do computers or whatever for Social Security. They they are home. Now it's funny because a lot of people where I live work for Social Security, and I know I know a guy, and he actually is the one who found us our home. He started his entire real estate business on the side while he was still working for the Social Security Administration. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what he did all year round there, but. He had he had the time to start a very successful real estate business, and then of course he was able to retire from it in his fifties and get you know a pension and health benefits for the rest of his life while you know then working full time for his real estate business. But anyway, I digress. There's very few agencies that are really shut down, so this whole thing's a joke. So I, I just wanted to lay that down very clearly. You're going to hear a lot of myths and facts peddled about what a government shutdown is and isn't um this is pure nonsense anything that's needed is there um that's number one number two is yes those that do go in so they're working and they're not being paid but again that only matters if you go for a week or two depending on the timing of the paychecks i mean right now it's not an emergency are you shut down for one monday you know it's not a big deal now we'll see by the time i finish this podcast it could be maybe republicans will cave but um you know, it's it's very clear that it's not that big of a deal. So one thing I want to make clear is it's important as conservatives to make the right arguments and not make the wrong arguments. What I don't like is I see on a lot of this Republican paraphernalia, some of their banners and Twitter memes, uh, you know, they're putting out, well, Democrats are, are they're hurting us. Like, please, come on. We, we didn't believe in that when we supported going to the brink. I, I don't, I don't believe that we should make the argument that you can't have a fight over appropriations and that it might lead to a shutdown. We don't believe that's a problem. Okay, because again, this is nonsense. And also, let, let's make it very clear. There's been about 18 shutdowns since 1977. Every single time, the federal employees are immediately retroactively paid back. So if you're like my buddies here who work for Social Security, you get a free paid vacation. It's awesome. So let's stop crying about it. Now, if you are, like many, considered essential, you go in. Look, I don't mean to be callous about this. And if you are someone that is literally living from one paycheck and you don't, you know, have enough in your checking or enough to immediately wire from your savings to your checking to cover for an extra week or two, I guess it would be a problem. But, you know, most people, and particularly if you're working for the federal government, um, I'm not saying they all get paid a tremendous amount. Uh, but but you're certainly getting paid enough that you shouldn't be in dire straits, unless maybe you have ten kids or something. But you, know, you should not be in dire straits. 
and missing one, it's only been one paycheck, maybe in one case, two paychecks in the um, 1995 shutdown, which lasted for 21 days. Look, you know, if, if someone told me that, okay, you're probably going to miss one or two paychecks, but you're guaranteed you're going to be paid back, paid back, which they are. Believe me, no member of Congress is be caught dead, not paying them back. So that's not a problem. So let's stop playing football with this, okay? Now, I have no problem making the argument against the Democrats the reason they're forcing a shutdown, that it's a disgrace. And it's a disgrace given their past history of for three decades saying how a government shutdown is the worst thing in the world, and here they cause it over illegal aliens. That's a very legitimate argument. But I don't want to make it as if we actually believe in, oh, it's terrible what you're doing, the government shutdown. Like, no, come on, stop it. Stop it. It's nonsense. Again, especially for the first week or so. Um, Really, really nonsense. The other thing I don't like is that Republicans are crying over S-chip. They're trying to out-left the Democrats. You're you're trying to throw 9 million kids off their health care. Look, I get the argument what you're trying to do, but, you know, we don't score, score points by trying to win an argument by being more liberal than them. And look, if nothing else, it does bring out how radical the Democrats have become, that they are willing to go to the brink and force a shutdown when Republicans are in the majority. And and typically when you're in the majority, you get what you want. When Democrats had the majority in 2009, they got the spending levels, the priorities and everything. Here, what's amazing is Republicans are increasing spending. So it's not like the 95 shutdown where Republicans control Congress. They're trying to cut spending. They're not trying to defund a certain priority like Ted Cruz, you know, in 2013 with Obamacare. They're funding Planned Parenthood. They're funding Obamacare. They're funding everything. And then in addition, they have a six-year extension of S-chip when the entire program is not necessary because Obamacare and Medicaid expansion cover everyone until 400% of the poverty level, which is the highest um, level of S-chip. Doesn't go beyond 400% of the poverty level. So even Obama, even the drafters of Obamacare intended for this program to to lapse. And yet Republicans are now championing it. But nonetheless, it is true to demonstrate how radical the left has become. I have to pinch myself to realize we're now living in a time where Democrats are fully 100 percent focused on illegal aliens to the point that they're going to shut the government down. It, it, It is truly unbelievable. But you know what is tragic? We started off the show by talking about how Democrats, how, I'm sorry, how illegals have succeeded in doing something that's actually good, shutting down non-essential functions of government, which should always be shut down. You know the travesty? Do you know what's not shut down? Do you know what's continuing during the government shutdown? Amnesty documents for illegals. It's unbelievable because of that stupid court order, which still has not been um, lifted by the Supreme Court. They did file an expedited appeal to the Supreme Court. We'll see what happens this week. Hopefully we'll hear good news. But could you imagine that? Social security cards and work permits for illegal aliens are being issued when other stuff is shut down during a shutdown over amnesty for illegals. That's how sickening this is because USCIS runs based on fees, not on appropriations, which I don't like. 
I, I really have constitutional issues with that. They shouldn't be able to operate under a funding lapse. So they are still being taken care of. Folks, that is the true government shutdown. That is the government. Now, not, not the you know, temporary lapse in funding for um, you know, paper pushers at the Social Security Administration. Or the bureaucrats at the Department of Education, assuming they, they don't go to work. I don't know if they do. The real shutdown is that we could have an unelected judge mandate amnesty for illegals and, and the executive branch just listens, and even during a shutdown. That's the true shutdown. Which brings me to another point. The asymmetrical warfare. It was very eerie to me, very surreal, that this is taking place on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And the reason I say that is this. Look at the power of Democrats to speak to the morality of their immorality. Look at the lengths that they're willing to go to. Look at the fact that they they are willing to pull legal and illegal maneuvers and pull out all the stops for illegal aliens. Yet Republicans won't use the most basic legal and constitutional means of fighting for 60 million babies that were murdered. Murdered since January 22nd, 1973. It was surreal. I, I was watching, p- part of it was I was watching the March to Life and Paul Ryan and all these phony pro-lifers um, just, you know, virtue signaling, oh yeah, Roe Ro v. Wade. And like, literally, they're doing this while they control all three branches and they're funding Planned Parenthood. And I said to myself, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. The contours of this entire debate are over whether Democrats will get an illegitimate request, demand hostage-taking for something that's not budgetary in nature, and it's not for Americans, it's for illegal aliens, or whether they won't get it. But it's kind of like a Cleveland Browns football game where the entire game is played on their side of the field. Wait a minute. We have possession of the ball. We should be on their side. The realm of outcome should be whether it's clean CR or whether we get what we want. And it's funny, and even like I said, even the clean CR is not clean. It's increasing spending and reauthorizing SCHIP. But I'm thinking Republicans are in the majority, Democrats are in the minority, and yet they're closer to getting amnesty, maybe not attached to this bill, but at least some sort of commitment that they're going to get passage as a step uh, standalone. Right, because I, I I do believe this is the threat. How this is going to end? I don't think Republicans are going to wind up giving it to them on the on the bill that opens up the government, but they are going to promise some sort of lateral agreement here. And yet, Republicans are the majority, and it's not even under discussion to defund a private organization which is budgetary in nature. But of course, they'll put out press releases on the March for Life, and do nothing about it. And do nothing about it. And by the way, I have, hopefully later this week, we're going to have Steve King on to discuss his heartbeat bill. How the national right to life, which is kind of like the NRA on a, on a equivalent to guns, they are frauds. They're the opposite of what they say they're going to do. They are opposing his bill. And this is what it means. They Every Republican says, I'm for limited government. I'm pro-life. I'm pro-gun. But they not only won't do anything meaningful to impact it at the leverage points, they're going to undermine anyone who tries to. So I was thinking to myself, 
Democrats are willing to do more for illegal aliens when they're in the minority than Republicans are willing to do for 60 million American babies murdered when they're in the majority. Folks, that is the asymmetrical warfare right there. And that is why we can't have nice things. That is why we will not succeed in this business until we have a new party. We just won't. It amazes me. It amazes me how the Democrats, they're they're willing to fight for their people. I have an article explaining this more in long form, but I wanted to give this over to you now during this podcast because you're not going to hear this perspective elsewhere. It's just amazing. You see what I'm saying? Even if Republicans hold strong, holding strong means, oh, I didn't allow Democrats to force amnesty on a budget bill when they're in the minority. What? Wait a minute. You should be cutting spending. You should be defunding Obamacare. You should be defunding Planned Parenthood. It's just amazing. Then there's the other aspect to Roe v. Wade, which is the judicial supremacy. Any talk of I'm pro-life is meaningless if you are not for judicial reform. I I want you to observe once again as it relates to state powers constitutional powers, engaging in civil disobedience for your cause, I want you to view the asymmetrical warfare between the parties. Okay. Irrespective of one's political views on immigration, nobody can disagree with the fact that legally, Congress certainly, certainly has the legal prerogative, the constitutional authority to regulate immigration and prescribe that only lawfully admitted aliens can reside in this country like any sovereign nation. No one could disagree with that. Unlike marriage and abortion and election law, which are not mentioned in the Constitution, they're left up to the states, immigration is solely within the province of the federal government. And that is a principle the courts themselves said already six decades ago that for six decades prior... There was an uninterrupted stream of settled case law. What um, Justice Jackson, famed Nuremberg uh, prosecutor, he was Supreme Court justice later on, champion of due process rights. He was the author of the dissenting view in Kuramatsu. Justice Jackson called this the most settled area of law, that Congress has control, states can't force you know more immigration on congress the courts can't do it congress controls it yet in the mold of the confederacy the neo-confederates in california not only are they aiding and abetting illegal aliens not only are they declaring their state a sanctuary from the most foundational federal power again you, you might disagree politically you might want more open borders But legally, you can't deny they have the authority, and under current law, you can't do that. But they took it a step further. Last week, California's attorney general, Javier Becerra, he was a former House member until recently, he threatened to prosecute employers in the state who cooperate with ICE and follow federal law over this area of law which the states clearly have no control. And I was saying to myself, Look at what the left is willing to do for illegal aliens. They are literally willing to engage in civil disobedience and create a neo-confederacy for illegal aliens. 
I mean, it's no exaggeration to suggest that with the exception of state, let's say a state official blocking deployment of National Guard units, thwarting immigration law is likely the most lawless act of a state official. And yet, no problem. No problem. Yet, look at what Democrats are willing to do to fight for their ideology, even as it relates to legal aliens, even when it means thwarting the most foundational statutes. Now look at Republicans. 45 years after Roe. Nothing. They've done nothing. They won't even, when they're in the majority, just not fund a private organization that, even if it wasn't pro-abortion, should get federal funding. It certainly has no entitlement to federal funding. Now that they're caught on the videos harvesting baby organs, they won't even cut off funding. They won't address the power of the courts and use Article 3, Section 2 to limit the jurisdiction of the courts over, over life. And now, it, see, this is not just about abortion. When a court could decide when life is, and, and the body politic views that is settled and final, and there's not a darn thing the other branches could do, then they could decide marriage, then they could decide gender, and now they can make denizens of aliens. And tragically, yet ironically, this, this came to fruition this year, 45 years after Roe v. Wade, when the D.C. Court of Appeals, the second most powerful court in this country, declared a, a right to chain migration abortion for illegal teenage girls, some of them are, aren't even teenagers anymore, to come here, unilaterally assert jurisdiction, and demand direct access to abortion. And we do nothing. Congress does nothing. The Republicans do nothing. Oh, but I'm pro-life. I'm pro-life. Let me march on the parade and give a speech and put out a press release. It, it just, to me, it's amazing. The Democrats are like the Navy SEAL of politics. I mean, they are willing to thwart federal law, engage in civil disobedience, um, shut down the entire federal government. You know, Dick Durbin said last week that he is going to be fully focused on dreamers. And I thought that's amazing. Here, based on the social contract, your representative, you have to represent your citizenry, and you're fully focused. Not, not 40%, 50% on illegals, 100%. And yet we can't get a Republican Party that will even use the lawful powers. You know, I, I say this all the time. You have federal courts telling North Carolina, telling Texas, telling all these states, you can't have photo ID. You must redefine marriage. You must redefine gender. You have to have 30 days of early voting. And they just listen. They, they just obsequiously listen, even though they're clearly, that's a state power. Anthony Kennedy said in the Windsor opinion, marriage is a state issue. But they won't do anything. Congress won't do anything. The states won't do anything. The Republican you know, controlled states. But you look at what the Democrats in Congress and the Democrat-controlled states will do even for illegal aliens, even over an illegitimate power, a power that the federal government manifestly has. And they are willing to go to the mat. That asymm asymmetry in politics is why we are where we are today. And you're seeing it now. Even everyone's like, oh, well, Republicans are kind of holding strong. Well, what are they supposed to do? Democrats are saying slit your throats. I mean, they're, they're pretty close to doing it. But, um, you know, it's funny. I joked a while back when I said Republicans are so maniacally afraid of a government shutdown, they refuse to fight for what they believe on, believe in. I said 
we're going to come we're going to approach a time when Democrats are going to start going the other way and say, all right, we're going to make demands. If you don't have, you know, $15 minimum wage attached to the budget bill, we're shutting down the government. If you don't give us cap and trade, um, we're going to shut the government down. If you don't give us single payer, we're going to shut the government down. But even I never envisioned a time when they would do it for illegal aliens. But again, Democrats know they're not going to get it on the budget bill. But what they are pushing for is a lateral agreement that they're basically going to pass the standalone one. And yet they can't stand stand behind it. You know, what's amazing to me is that with control of all branches of government, Republicans are refusing to use it. And really use it in the only way that's going to ensure that they keep it. Because if they don't use it, they're going to lose it. And there's a tremendous lesson, a very teachable moment, and I think some Republicans are getting this, that you can't look at superficial polling. You have to do definitive things, message it properly, and and then the polling lags behind. Notice how terribly unpopular the tax bill was. Guess what? The big news over the weekend is becoming popular because when you're proven right and people do get um, increases, both, both you're having the bonuses, people are getting increases in salary, but also just from the tax bill alone beginning in the month of February when the new IRS withholding tables kick in, their paychecks are going up no matter what. So it's becoming a lot more popular. They should learn the lesson for Obamacare, too, by the way. Just repeal it. See, everyone in this society is scared of uncertainty. You you see it in the markets, Dow Dow Jones, always the fear of uncertainty. It's something that plagues Western democracies. But if you go ahead and do it and make a strong play, it moves the needle. And Republicans have a tremendous opportunity to just pass Tom Cotton's Raise Act. Say, yes, we should we should address immigration. And again, you're going to have to at least threaten to do something with the filibuster. So before we get back to immigration and kind of sew up the show here, I just want to deviate a little bit to discuss the filibuster. It makes no sense that Democrats have no fear of Republicans pulling any sort of nuclear option, which they have the power to do. Here's my here are just my brief thoughts on the filibuster. If you haven't heard it before, foundationally, I agree with the filibuster. That's why it's it was there. It's not the Constitution. Let's be clear, but it's pretty important because it was part of Thomas Jefferson's rules when he set up the original Senate. And the reason was because they liked the republic the, the way they founded it, and they didn't they wanted it to be very hard to to change things. They didn't want a lot of legislation. Well, now we have this bloodless revolution over 100 years of the progressives, and we need to change a lot of things. But yet we can't. I was always against changing it, but what sold me, what, where Mark Levin sold me on this was that it became evident that we, we've crossed the Rubicon where Democrats will get rid of it anyway. The next time they win all three branches, and the only thing stopping them is a filibuster enabling Senate minority from Republicans – they will absolutely get rid of it. No one in the political system believes otherwise. They will get rid of it. So at this point, 
if we're not going to benefit from the defensive parts of it anyway, we just may as well go on offense. Now, obviously, there's a lot of gradations between where we are now and just abolishing the filibuster, making it completely, you know, 51% majority like in the House. The problem now is that it's become a de facto 60 vote threshold for everything, that for everything, including budget bills, it's 60 votes. I agree with the filibuster, but a filibuster should be a filibuster. It should be either like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. You should need a talking filibuster or at least. And this is really the current rules that the Senate Republicans would only enforce it. My buddy, um, James Walner, expert on uh, Senate parliamentarian tactics and just Senate rules in general. He's um he's a colleague of my colleague uh, Gaston Mooney here who's the executive direct, director at CRTV and he when they both worked for Jim DeMint and Senate steering committee together and he he has a great article you could google it James Walner two speech rule filibuster it's called the two speech rule where you could limit the minority member the members of the minority party to two speeches um in any legislative day and you just you know you have the same legislative day you don't adjourn so you could have a legislative day for six months and you're gonna eventually exhaust them and then you could you know vote to proceed um and then you know they have to give up the floor and you could vote to proceed so you know they need to enforce that or they need to at least threaten to get rid of the filibuster on budget bills to me, that's a very attractive. So you'll leave it in place for legislation where if we're in the minority, we'll be able to use it. Although I do think no matter what, the Democrats are going to get rid of it. But OK, maybe on the 5% chance they don't, you'll still preserve it. But the reason why I say it on budget, because Republicans, you see how weak they are when they're in the majority on the budget. They don't get anything they want. Certainly when they're in the minority, gone are the days when we're going to be able to use a budget and force a government shutdown to get what we want when we're in the minority. That has never worked. They're never going to do that. They're never going to do that again. I think we all know that. So we're not losing anything by giving up that prerogative um, when we're in the majority because they're not going to use it when they're in the minority. So at least get rid of it on budget bills or at least make a rule that for a budget bill – after we've already reached a point of lapse in funding, you know, maybe before the deadline, you need 60 votes, but after only 51. In other words, you've got to threaten something. Otherwise, you're going to get nothing. Otherwise, the tax bill was it, and you're going to get nothing. You're going to get nothing. You have a Democrat party that is solely focused on illegal aliens and willing to shut down the government for illegal aliens. So you're not going to work with them on anything. They're political terrorists. Something needs to be done about that, and and Democrats at least have to be made to fear they're going to lose some of that power. They don't even fear it now. Like, hey, you guys got 24 hours to vote for, for the CR, or I got news for you folks. I got news for you. That, that filibuster on appropriation bills is gone. So you know what? We're going to start passing appropriation bills one by one and having our priorities in it. Let me tell you, they're going to come to the table very quickly. Instead, you know, McConnell's already saying, well, we're going to vote on a DACA bill. We'll allow amendments. No, well, wait a minute. Why, why, why should we have to legitimize their demand? I mean, can you imagine Republicans when they're in the minority, you know, Democrat president, Democrat House and Senate, the minority in the Senate, filibustering, had government shutdown, and they're, they're shutting down the government because we want – we will not vote for a budget bill until we have Social Security private accounts. Okay? 
could you imagine Democrats like, look, you can't do this to shut down the government. But if you vote for the government, you know, bill to open up the government, well, you know what? We'll allow you a standalone bill on private social security accounts. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine? And again, that's for Americans. Sadly, Republicans agree on the stupid DACA business. Anyway, so that, that's what needs to happen. But I want to close by going back to immigration. There's a very easy argument that's not being made here. We already tried amnesty numerous times. We never tried enforcement. We were lied to. We were lied to about chain migration in 1965 and 1990. Isn't it time to first fulfill the promise to Americans and end chain migration, fix legal immigration for Americans first, fix our enforcement regime, our interior enforcement, our border enforcement, so that at least if you subsequently do another amnesty, it will be the last amnesty? Think about it. We are now dealing with illegal aliens that came here as a result of the last amnesty when it was promised to us that we wouldn't have this. And now these same vermin have the temerity to come before us and say, you must give amnesty or I'm shutting down the government, when they were the ones who passed the very amnesty that led to this problem. Chuck Schumer has been around so long, he was the lead, one of the lead sponsors in 86, and he lied to us. I have an article out today and linked to in show notes, three decades of Schumer lies on immigration. And there's a lot of quotes you're not going to see elsewhere. I want to read this to you. Something here I want to read to you. Very, very important. I mean, there's really a lot of quotes from Schumer in there, but this one's particularly jarring. So, because I, I actually just found this um, on, on a Nexus search, New York Times article. And um, you know what? I'm going to link to the article separately just so you could find it. November 7th, 1986. So it was after the passage of it. New York Times interviewed Chuck Schumer. Here's what Chuck Schumer had to say. Just sorry here, just just pulling up the article. Where are we? The bill is a gamble, a riverboat gamble. There is no guarantee that employer sanctions will work or that amnesty will work. We are headed into uncharted waters. Chuck Schumer said that 32 years ago. And now the gamble is in, the jury's in. We understand what happened. We have millions of aliens that he admits we have an emergency because of what he did didn't work. And this guy has the, you know what, to go and, and demand from us the very same solution that engendered this very problem that he himself at the time admitted was a gamble and might not work. And now, incontrovertibly, according to all sides, it's clear it didn't work. And, and, and Republicans don't even make this case. Of course, the media won't, won't make this case. You know, I go through in this article how a lot of people know about the 86 amnesty. They know about the 1965 Hart-Seller Act, the Kennedy Bill, you know, what's more, more known as the Kennedy Bill. A lot of people don't know about the 1989-1990 debate on immigration. Every time we ever debated immigration, it actually started out as a way of being more pro-American and it always got hijacked in the end 
and got worse. But at the time, they had to sell it to us under our language, and Chuck Schumer sounded like Tom Cotton. Basically, what happened in the late 90s is that after two decades, the first two decades of the heart seller regime, the new immigration system, plus the legal immigration that it spawned and the 1986 amnesty, there was a universal recognition of three things. One is that immigration was no longer skills-based and it was all chain migration. Number two, that it was all coming from Asia and Latin America, not Europe. And by the way, Chuck Schumer and Kennedy and all the Democrats used the term diversity. A lot of people forget this. They said our immigration is not diverse enough. Now, they didn't mean what they mean now, that we need more from the third world. They meant that it's exclusively from the third world, and that was a problem. They meant that as a way of saying we need more from Europe. And that's why the diversity visa lottery sponsored by Schumer and attached to that 1990 broader immigration bill was designed because it was it was supposed to be a balancing act against third world immigration to, to give um, visas more towards people of traditional ancestry in our country. That Those are words that Chuck Schumer used. He said immigration needs to be diverse and needs to reflect our ancestry. You'd be called a racist if you say that now. This is what Chuck Schumer said. And it needs to be employment-based. It needs to work for our economy. Can't be chain migration. And it was promised to us. And by the way, indeed, the first few years of the diversity lottery went a lot to the Irish. 40% of them went to the Irish. People forget it was the Irish community in New York that lobbied Schumer for this. But instead, like everything else, it got hijacked to double down on the third world. Now, I want you guys to understand this. Could you imagine that even Democrats, at least in rhetoric, the very leader of the open borders Democrats now, 28 years ago, when we were at the foot of the mountain of this third world chain migration, they recognized it was too much. It wasn't working. Now, we would die to go back to the demographics of 1990. That was 30 million immigrants ago, mainly from the third world, mainly chain migrants, mainly impoverished. Cultural problems, welfare problems. And yet, here we are three decades later. And there's only a handful of Republicans that are willing to recognize the emergency we have with five consecutive decades of the Kennedy bill, you know, double down on. And, and, and the fact that the 1990 immigration bill wound up making it worse. It was one great big lie. Great big lie. It's just, it, it, it is so sad that we have nobody making these points. Nobody. And by the way, I have another piece that hopefully will come out today with some good charts. Nobody else has presented this data. The top 30 countries of origin of our immigrants for 2016, the last year we have the full data, number of people we handed out green cards to by country. And then I juxtapose, I don't have this census data for all of them because I take it from Stephen Camerato, Center for Immigration Studies. He he only called them from maybe 60% of the countries on the list, but it's still enough to get a picture. The poverty rates, the welfare usage rates, and the English language proficiency level by country. And you will see that with the exception of India, South Asia, 
and yes, European countries, but the European countries aren't on the top 30. They're way down. The top immigrant countries we have from Mexico, Dominican Republic, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, have the lowest rates of English language proficiency, the highest rates of welfare use, up to 60%, highest rates of poverty. And it's all because of chain migration. Again, if we had a merit-based system, it wouldn't matter where you come from. Because, look, if you're one of the you know, minority of people from these areas that are going to be productive and you learn English, then you would do well under a point system. If not, not. But yes, under a point system, obviously, it will be reoriented more towards Europe and, you know, to a certain extent, a couple countries in the Western Horn of Africa and South Asia, just because right now it's oriented towards, um, towards other countries. It's too much the other way. I want, I want to read to you a fascinating two pages from a book I have in my library. Aristide Zolberg, he, he actually died a couple of years ago. He was one of the possibly the preeminent immigration historian of the last generation. He wrote a number of books on immigration. Now, he's a liberal, but, you know, like most of these academic types, but he was very thorough. Just, you know, his the facts, the history was unassailable. He was a historian first. And he, he just wrote amazingly thorough scholarly books. And I have a lot of them as some of the preparation that I use to write my own book, Stolen Sovereignty on Immigration, still available at Amazon, by the way, and more relevant now than ever before. But um, he wrote in, in the second to last chapter, and, and this book, by the way, it's, it's titled A Nation by Design. And I quote a little bit in this article that I'm linking to, but I, I want to read to you the full quote. So he's talking about the 1989-1990 immigration bill. And he said, he, he, he writes as follows. Even as the measure was nearing completion, a Roper poll reported that 75% of the public said legal immigration should not be increased. And nearly half said it should be reduced. I actually think the numbers are even stronger now. But anyway, furthermore, a majority believe that illegal immigration as well as illegal Im- immigrants displaced American workers, burdened the social welfare system, and threatened American culture. Given the growing anti-immigration mood, and you know this is his term, given the growing anti-immigration mood in the country at large, he asked an amazing question. What accounts for enactment of a law moving in the opposite direction? And, and this is... You know, just broadly true that every time the American people wanted one thing, the opposite came out. Daniel Titchener has pointed out that the measure, quote, reflected an insulation of the policymaking process from restrictive minded publics. (laughs) But it's true. And Reimers also suggests that Congress was more liberal than the public and responsive to special interests favoring immigration. In a more nuanced vein, Deborah DeLate has observed similarly that, quote, Congress initially attempted to address the public desire for restrictions on legal immigration and to assert the appearance of control. Now, I'm going to cut in here. I left out one point. The first iteration of this bill, S-352, introduced early in 1989 by Alan Simpson, 
and Ted Kennedy, none other than the two bipartisan liberal immigration dudes, when they introduced the bill on Senate Judiciary Committee, it actually had a merit-based system, and it made English language proficiency one of the big criterions for the merit-based system. But later, the ethnic groups got a hold of them and, and whatever and changed it. But listen to what he says here. So initially, they indulged the people's requests. You know, they say, yeah, we're, we're going to make it work for America. But then, and that passage of the liberal policy, in spite of popular support for immigration restrictions, can be attributed to interest group politics and liberal norms. The decisive factor was that while public support for a reduction in legal immigration was broad, it was not well organized. In contrast, a liberal coalition of well-organized groups, including ethnic organizations, churches, and employer associations, articulated strong opposition to proposals for restricting legal immigration, and the incipient international human rights regime provide moral weight to their claims as well. That is more true now than ever before, but it's amazing the lessons you could learn from then. The way I take out of this is what happened was back then – Nobody on our side knew, studied the immigration issue. Immigration was completely owned as a matter of public policy by the left-wing immigration groups. So what would happen is people like Chuck Schumer would get up there and actually say our talking points, even Ted Kennedy. This bill will not flood our country with yada yada. You know, Kennedy said that in 65. Schumer said something similar after the 86 amnesty because they knew the American people wanted to hear it. But they knew that they didn't know much about the issue, and they'd be fooled by it. Now, Democrats can no longer talk like that because we'd call them on it. So they, they're openly being open borders now. And that's why they resent the presence of people like Stephen Miller and Tom Cotton, who actually have a background on this issue. And that's the lesson we need to get in their face. We need to call our members of Congress and say, not only should you not vote for amnesty, it is time to do something about the filibuster, and it's time to pass the Reigns Act. It's time to fulfill the promise made by Ted Kennedy, the 50-year promise to make immigration work for America, that it should only enhance our culture, only enhance our security, only enhance our economy, no welfare. No poverty. Not that there's anything wrong with poverty. People get impoverished. But immigration is an elective policy. So at this stage in our country's maturity level, we should only bring in skilled people. Should only know English. Not that there's anything wrong with people around the world not knowing English. Only knowing their native country's language. But again, if we have a choice, we should bring in English speakers. You fulfill that promise, and then you fulfill the promises of asylum reform, refugee reform, UAC reform, visa exit entry, the border wall, E-Verify, deporting all the criminal aliens, ending sanctuary cities. Then come back to us and talk about DACA. Otherwise, it's time for an American DACA. It's time to end the shutdown of our immigration system. It's time to end the shutdown of judicial tyranny. It's time for a party that stands for Americans the same way the Democrat Party stands for illegal aliens. We're going to have a lot more on this issue. We're going to have a lot more coverage on the shutdown. We're going to try to have great guests this week. But for now, we're out of time. Thanks for listening. God bless you all. This has been another episode 
of the conservative conscience.